But our speaker this year is, is Pastor Robert Cunningham. If you'd come on up. He's, oh, there he is. He's right there. All right, come on up here, Robert. Um, so Robert and I went to seminary together, but we didn't really know each other um, much. We knew of each other, but that was about it. We had a mutual friend uh, that we both are very affectionate for. Um, over the past two years, I don't care who you are, if you're any form of leadership at all, uh, in any business, church, whatever, it's been tough. Um, there has been more polarization over the past two years um, than I can ever recall. I'm not that old. I'm a little old, but, but it's been very polarizing. Uh, it's been very difficult. I've prayed for wisdom more than I've ever prayed before. And somehow uh, got tuned into uh, Pastor Cunningham Roberts' podcast, and um, it was such a great balm to my soul uh, as he held forth Jesus. And so it's men like Robert who pastor your pastors. Uh, it's men like Robert who pastor uh, many with the good news of Jesus and the hope of Jesus. And so, so thankful that Robert uh, accepted the invitation to come and to speak on this very important topic of unity uh, in a polarized world. So, uh, Robert, if I could just pray for you, brother, and then uh, we'll dig in. So, Lord God, thank you so much for my brother. And God, thank you for how you have drawn him to yourself, Lord. But more than that, God, how you've just given him a love for you, Jesus, uh, a love that doesn't, doesn't change based on the size of his ministry or the work he has to do, God. Um, but his simple love for you, Jesus, is such a wonderful blessing to him that we know comes from you, uh, but it's also a blessing to us, Lord. So, Lord, we know it's been a long day for many of the guys here. Help us to... Uh, receive what you have to teach us through your Holy Spirit and through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, so what uh, What Dan did not tell you, I am a pastor. I'm not just a podcaster. I do, I do pastor. Uh, so I'm, I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. I'm, I'm coming to you from Kentucky, and uh, I pastor a church in, in, in Kentucky called um, Taste Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington. This is my first time here. I, too, have never been to Antarctica, but I feel like I have now. <laughs> Antarctica is probably warmer than this. Um, is my sound going to drive you crazy? Should I get like a regular? Oh, you're working on it. It's not me. I'm just worried about them. It just feels... All right, you figure it out. I'll do my thing. All right. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 17. I'm just going to ground us in this one passage. Uh, your theme is uh, one in Christ, unity in a time of polarization. So I thought it would be fitting we turn to the uh, priestly prayer where Jesus prays exactly that. And I'm just going to read verses 20 um, through, uh, we'll just do 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. So, the task that uh, I've been asked to pick up is, is the issue of church unity 
in a polarized world, and I can't think of a more important topic for the church in our day. Um, as Dan just alluded to, I, I think if you're going to host a men's retreat in this hour, in this cultural moment, I can't imagine something more important to admonish the men of your presbytery uh, toward than unity as we inhabit a culture that's um, utterly divided. Um, and it's a topic, according to the passage that I just read to you, is of utmost importance to our Savior himself. If you were to ask Jesus what he wants from you, what he wants from us, at the top of that list would be our unity. And if that's what he wants, I think we ought to do it. Novel concept, I know. But it's an obvious point that I think needs to be made, particularly, I would say, for our tradition. Now, um, I, I, I don't know the makeup of uh, Wisconsin and, and your presbytery and, and all of that. I, I don't want to make assumption that everybody is from uh, the PCA world, or even if you're at a PCA church and are here at the Presbytery's Men's Retreat, that you even know that you're at a PCA church or even what that means. Um, I'm going to critique our tradition a little bit here, uh, but maybe some of you um, aren't from that tradition, but I'm assuming a lot of you are from our tradition, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Um, the idea that Jesus wants us to do it, and we actually probably should obey Jesus, I would say, in our tradition, um, is an understated, should be obvious, but not obvious truth. Let me show you what I mean with a little thought experiment. Our kids have chores that they are expected to do every night. The most dreaded of these are the dishes. Nobody likes doing the dishes. I hate doing the dishes. My kids hate doing the dishes, but I'm the parent. They're the kids, so they get to do the dishes. Um, well, suppose I say, let's just play this out. Suppose I say, to boys, I have four boys. Say, boys, do the dishes. Mom and I are going into the living room to catch up on our day, and when I come back, I want the dishes done. So Abby and I, my wife Abby and I slip away, have a nice peaceful chat about our day, and it works that way, but just pretending. And I come back in, and the dishes have not been done. And I say to the boys, why didn't you do the dishes? And they say, well, we've given a lot of thought to your command to do the dishes. In fact, we looked at it from every angle to discover the deepest possible meaning of do the dishes. In fact, we invited our friends over for a do the dishes study. Together, we have discussed how profound your command truly is. We can even tell you what do the dishes is in Hebrew and Greek. I would rightfully say, boys, what are you talking about? Do the dishes. Well, Dad, we know you want us to do the dishes. But the good news, the gospel, if you will, Dad, the good news is that we are not accepted within this family because we do the dishes. So secure are we in your love and our status as your children that we know that even if we don't do the dishes, you're still going to love us. We didn't get into this family for doing the dishes. We can't be kicked out of this family for not doing the dishes. So we just want to say thank you, Father. How deep our Father's love for us. Our dirty dishes, they are many. But your mercy is more. I think our tradition is desperate to recover the obvious yet strangely elusive practice of the Christian faith that we should actually obey our Savior. 
we should probably do what Jesus tells us to do. Our orthodoxy, right thinking, is solid. What about orthopraxy, right doing? After all, faith without works is dead. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is heresy. I truly believe that no tradition is better at articulating the teachings of Jesus than our tradition, and I mean that. That's why I love the PCA. That's why I'm a minister of the PCA. But how about the novel concept that his teachings were not given to be analyzed but to be obeyed? So what does that mean? Our Lord says a lot. Clearly, he thinks we should obey the Great Commission to evangelize and disciple the nations. Clearly, he thinks we should obey the Great Commandment to love God and neighbor. And yes, these are true. It must not be neglected. Focus on what he himself... I say we focus on what he himself chooses to single out in his prayer for us. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is you. The apostle's word that he speaks of here was canonized in the New Testament. We are those who believe in Jesus through the inspired apostolic testimony, through their word. So when he prayed the high priestly prayer he had in his divine omniscience, he had in that prayer in mind a Wisconsin men's gathering in 2022. I'm praying for them that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If that's the one thing that Jesus singles out when he prays for us, then I think it's safe to assume that he wants us to receive it with utmost sincerity. Not to just study it this weekend, but to obey it. To be the answer to his prayer that we would indeed be one. But what does that even mean? Let's work with the text a little bit. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So he grounds our oneness in the oneness of God. His prayer is that we would be one as God is one. So what we discover when we explore the mystery of the Trinity's oneness is uncompromising unity and diversity. I say uncompromising because we tend to think of those two as opposites. To have one, you have to compromise the other. But within the Trinity, unity and diversity exist as co-equals. Notice the grammar of verse 21 that seems contradictory. That they may all, plural, be one, singular. How can that be? Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Notice the clear distinction there. He does not say, just as you, Father, are I, and I am you. That's not Trinity. Our theology teaches the Father and Son are two distinct persons. And yet, though they are two distinct persons, they are at the same time one God. Jesus does not say we are two. He says we are one. And that's not not just a figure of speech. He literally means we, plural, are one singular. Now, I know this is incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense. Trinity, Trinitarian math is one plus one plus one equals one. But within this incomprehensibility, we discover the fullest expression of both unity and diversity existing together, which is what Jesus is praying for us, which is what Jesus is praying will exist among us. 
So let's take the Trinitarian doctrine and apply it to us. First is unity. God's people are to embody a unity as defined by the Trinity. Now, this obviously means that in this room, but we're, we're thinking more application toward your churches. I mean, this is, this is very significant. If, if the men that are represented in this room, and I'm, I'm sure there are pastors here, I'm sure there's elders, but I'm just saying if the men in this presbytery go back to their churches with this, that will set the tone of the culture of your churches. So this is significant. And what, what first what it means is that the most obvious thing is that dissension, slander, gossip, unkindness, all these things are off the table for God's people. Christians are not allowed to be mean, period. And when we are, as we inevitably will be, it is required of us to apologize, repent, and be reconciled and heal the unity that we have broken. That's a given, right? That's a given. But remember, we are defining unity by the Trinity, and this is much more than avoiding disunity. It is depths of unity such that Jesus says to the Father, I am in you and you are in me. Never mistake the absence of disunity as the presence of unity. You could have a community of Christ followers that have absolutely no disunity among them, and yet they are not one as Jesus prays for them. Because unity through anonymity is not unity. So if we don't know each other, if we are not in community, bumping up against each other's quirks and sins, then yeah, it may appear unified because we aren't fighting, but that's not what Jesus is praying for. He defines unity by the Trinity. I am in you, you are in me. He speaks of intimacy, vulnerability, fully known, fully knowing another. And basically all these things that make men like us squirm. But this is the expectation nonetheless. Trinitarian unity is much more than avoiding disunity. It is the pursuit of knowing and being known. But it's not just unity, it's diversity. Again, though they are one, they are at the same time distinct persons. Jesus is not the Father, and Father is not Jesus. A common misconception that we tend to have is that unity equals uniformity. We know we are to be united as one, but a misapplication of that is a forced uh, conformity within our communities. It's easy to convince ourselves that we are united by building communities of people just like us. Communities who think the same way, prefer the same things, and typically look the same way. And then we all get together and think that we love each other, when in reality, we just kind of love ourselves and people like us. And this is revealed, this, this, is, this is how you know this is at play. This is revealed when someone not like us, whether it be socially, um, economically, ethnically, culturally, politically, enters the community. <laughs> And suddenly there is this subtle pressure to conform to our uniformity or just find another community that fits you better. But that's not the Trinity. The Trinity is unity and diversity, which is what Jesus is praying for us. So what does Jesus want from us? Trinitarian oneness. Unity and diversity, or as I like to describe it, harmony. The Trinity is divine harmony, eternal harmony. Different persons with different roles playing the same song. So consider an orchestra. If you have different parts of an orchestra playing, the, playing a different song, it would sound awful. You have, you have to have unity of song. But if you had different parts of the orchestra playing the same notes, it would likewise be awful in its blandness. You have to have diversity of parts. So diversity of parts working together, playing the same song, and it becomes beautiful. 
And that is Jesus' prayer for us, that the harmony of the Trinity would resound within our communities. And my simple question here at the beginning is whether our churches are obeying this expectation of our Lord. I don't know you well, obviously, but if you're anything like the rest of American evangelicalism, um, then chances are your communities are in danger of being formed less by Trinitarian oneness and more by cultural divisions. What I'm seeing is that the unmistakable cultural divide that we all see, that the unmistakable cultural divide is being replicated within the sacred boundaries of our ecclesial communities. Simply put, we don't look like the Trinity, we look like the world around us. And so I think it would be helpful for me to add a cultural critique here at the beginning of our retreat. Together, we're saying unity in a time of polarization. I think we need to understand the polarization, analyze what is transpiring around us in this world, not just so that we can understand it, but more importantly, so that we can renounce it. So that we can say that has no part in the church of Jesus Christ. What we have become as a society is satanic. And I don't use that lightly. Think about it. If Jesus prays that we would be one, then is it any surprise that Satan always seeks to divide? That is his aim. To undo this prayer of Jesus and divide the body of Jesus. And so I think it's satanic. I think that's what's going on. And I want to let C.S. Lewis show you what I mean. Uh, Lewis inhabited an incredibly divided culture, particularly surrounding World War II. Um, there were, in, their, in those days, they, they had these two languages, the different camps. You know, you can use whatever terminology for the camps that exist within our culture. Within uh, Lewis's uh, British culture at the time, there were patriots who supported the war and pacifists who opposed the war. And they were very strongly divided. And his famous screw tape letters... Um, he offers an incredibly important critique of the cultural divide that he was facing, but from a spiritual warfare perspective. The concept of the screw, if you haven't read the screw tape letters, that's okay. I would, I would highly recommend it. But the concept of the screw tape letters is that they are written from the perspective of a demon named Screw Tape. And Screw Tape is writing to his young uh, demonic protege, Warmwood. And Screw Tape is advising Warmwood on what to do with his patient. And his patient is a newly converted Christian that Wormwood has been assigned to, to torment. And so it's written to give us, uh, C.S. Lewis with his creative brilliance, he writes this to give us an inside perspective on the schemes of the devil and his evil forces. And in one letter in particular, uh, Screwtape encourages Wormwood to um, take his patient and get him consumed with the cultural divide of his day. And I think it's incredibly prophetic, though written um, during the time of the World War. I think it's incredibly prophetic for us today. So what I want to do is I want to read some of it and add some commentary. So this is, this, this is, this is what Screwtape says. I have not forgotten my promise. He's speaking to Wormwood, his disciple, his demonic disciple. I have not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient, remember the patient is a newly converted Christian, whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. You just take our cultural divide and you can add those terms to it. I won't do it to, as, so as not to make him mad. We'll go with patriot and pacifist since that doesn't make him mad. All right. Extreme patriot or pacifist. 
This is what he says. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy. Remember, the enemy here is God. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. What a quote. All extremes, except extreme devotion to God, are to be encouraged. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent. And then it is our business to soothe them faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction. And it is our business to inflame them. Here's what he's saying. Sometimes the culture, sometimes the culture isn't in crisis. Things are good. No controversies are emerging. And um, the business, the satanic business there is to then lull them asleep into a lukewarm complacency of cultural comfort. But other times are unbalanced times of crisis, prone to faction, in which case it is our business to inflame the divide. Now I ask you, where do you think we are right now? After the past two years and all that has transpired culturally, and now what we are facing, who knows what we're facing in geopolitical terms, I'd say all that we have experienced over the past few years qualifies as unbalanced times of crisis. We are a fractured, raging, divided culture, and Satan's scheme in this present age is to inflame that divide and for you to get caught up in it. This is what Lewis says. Whichever he adopts, patriotism or pacifism, your main task will be the same. Now listen to this. I'll go slow and add commentary, but listen to the way Lewis describes what happens to Christians in, in ages of divide. Let him begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as a part of his religion, meaning patriotism or pacifism is a part of Christianity. Then let him under the influence of partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part. So patriotism or pacifism inflamed by partisanship moves to become the most important part of Christianity. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which religion becomes merely, not merely a part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of patriotism or pacifism. Here's what he just said. Patriotism and pacifism become the religion, and Christianity only serves as a means to support that religion. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in, in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. This is what he's saying. Don't let him value Christianity above all else and view the partisan divide as an opportunity to demonstrate his obedience to Jesus. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means to that end, you have almost won your man, and it makes little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. He's saying, I don't care what worldly extreme he is pursuing, just as long as that worldly extreme is the end of his religion. Now listen to this, and we're done. When meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, and causes matter more to him than prayers, sacraments, and charity, he is ours. When partisan news, 
podcasts, social media fights, political rallies, virtue signaling online, and so forth, matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. Friends, we are living in a satanic age. Satan smiles over the state of our churches consumed by cultural divisions. But Jesus weeps. Weeps over our failure to be the answer to his prayer. I think we should repent. I think we should renounce Satan and all spiritual forces of darkness in this culture and obey the Lord Jesus. And in so doing, not only will we heal our communities, we will give Jesus what he wants. We will answer his prayers. Indeed, we will fulfill the very purpose of his death. Why did Jesus die? Not for you. Don't individualize that cross. He died for his people of whom you get the honor to be included in. Ephesians 2, that great chapter that so clearly outlines salvation that many in our tradition love, grace through faith, by grace you have been saved through faith. But that doctrine of salvation is only being used by Paul to make his main point at the end of the chapter. That is only his indicative to get to his imperative. And this is the imperative of our salvation. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. Why does Jesus pray for our oneness? Because our oneness is why he bleeds. His body broken, that we might be united. A few weeks ago, my sons were fighting again over the dishes. Usually I insert myself into the fight and try to get to the bottom of it, find a solution, get them to apologize and so forth. This time I tried something different. They're arguing, no end in sight. So I quietly stand up, walk over to the sink, and just start doing the dishes myself. And it's fascinating what happened. Not only did it end the argument, but they both came over and started helping me do the dishes together. This is what Jesus has done. He looks at a crazy, divided, fractured people, enmity between each other, enmity with God. He doesn't insert himself in the veins like, why can't y'all get along? And certainly, why can't y'all get along with God? He ends the division with his action. After praying for their unity, this is the last recorded prayer with his disciples, he gets up from the table that upper room and goes off to be crucified. Not just to reconcile us to God, but to one another. And when we behold him, hanging from that cross of reconciliation, not only does it silence our division, for there is no division before the cross. All are united together in our shared unworthiness. Not only does it silence our division, it leads to repentance, does it not? It leads us to obey his example, to answer his prayer and honor his sacrifice that we would be one as he is one with his father. Let me pray. Well, Father, as we come this weekend to hear from you, I pray that it would be your voice we hear. Lord, you, you prayed to the father that we would be one and you have sent your spirit, the third person, 
to make that happen in our lives and in this room. Would you anoint this, the next couple days? Would you make this holy ground? Would you make it a place of deep conviction and repentance, but overwhelmed with grace and mercy and love and kindness, that we love each other because you loved us first? Would you overwhelm us with the gospel that your kindness might lead us to repentance, that your kindness might lead us out of division and into oneness? This is our prayer in your name. Amen.